Hey everyone, thank you so much for joining us from out there in internet cyber world. We're so glad that you're uh, choosing to uh, be with us as we uh, worship God and as we open his word. So please uh, open the, your Bible with me, pull it up on your phone, whatever you're going to do there for uh, Isaiah chapter 40 is where we're going to be today. We get another musical passage this, uh, this week from uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, this time, the, Isaiah himself doesn't call this a song like he did in a couple of the passages we've uh, looked at uh, in the past in this series, but it's still a musical passage because this, this section was put to music by a, uh, an English composer named George back in 1741, he put this to music. He uh, included it in the little oratorio that he was writing about Jesus. You know it as Handel's Messiah. So uh, Handel's Messiah uh, has a lot of stuff from Isaiah in it. In fact, about, about a quarter of the whole thing is straight from the book of Isaiah, including a section uh, taken from this chapter right here. And our passage this morning is the part of the Messiah that goes like this. It goes, uh, no, I'm not going to sing it. Sorry. <laughs> um, I'll just read it to you. It'll be much better for you all if I do not sing. You can uh, look it up on YouTube later if you want to hear it. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, starting with verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, who remembers where we are historically uh, in the book of Isaiah? Um, remember uh, the couple chapters back uh, when Pastor Mike preached on, on last week uh, was the story about Hezekiah and the Assyrian invasion and how they had stayed faithful and true to God and trusted in him to deliver them from the Assyrians. And God had come through and he had uh, humbled the king of Assyria and sent him packing back to Nineveh. And, uh, and it had been a great victory for the people of God. But now, here in chapter 40, uh, it's saying, comfort, speak tenderly, proclaim that her hard service has been completed. Uh, who, who is this that needs comfort? In the story, we just had a great victory. We're not needing comforting here. So what's, uh, what's, what's happening here in the, in the narrative? Well, Isaiah is a book of prophecy. And that means that it is a book of messages from God that he gave to the prophet in order for the prophet to deliver those messages to God's people. And so it isn't, it's not a history book. Um, and that means that when, when you start to try to follow the narrative of one of these prophetic books, it can be kind of disjointed and, and not very uh, cohesive narrative, because it's not a, a narrative story. It is a book of messages from God. And, uh, and, and of course, the prophecy also sometimes refers to things that were in the future for the prophet and for his original audience. And that's what's happening here. Um, and sometimes things that were about to happen are being talked about, and sometimes things that are far off in the future. And as we've talked about a few times already in this series, we've, we've explained this, that, uh, that <clears throat> sometimes... A prophecy relates to multiple events that take place at different times in relation to when the prophecy was given. 
That means that a particular prophecy might have a near partial fulfillment that takes place just a short time after it's given, and then it might have a, another more distant uh, further fulfillment when the, when the prophecy is fulfilled again, and then a final ultimate fulfillment that might be even further away when uh, the, the ultimate uh, meaning of the prophecy is seen and fulfilled uh, in that time. <clears throat> and we see this a lot in the prophecies about uh, the day of the Lord. That's a phrase that you see a lot in uh, biblical prophecy. They talk about the day of the Lord. And, uh, and it refers to the day when God comes to rescue his people. But many times when Isaiah or one of the other prophets talks about the day of the Lord, he has in mind more than one time that God is going to come and rescue his people. So he'll say, in the day of the Lord, it's going to be like this. And he is referring to more than one event. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's usually a, a near salvation when God's going to come and save his people, such as uh, the story from last week when God came and rescued Hezekiah and his people from the Assyrians. And then a greater salvation, uh, which when it talks about the day of the Lord, usually it's referring to the coming of Jesus, which happened um, you know, now almost 2,000 years ago when Jesus came and won our salvation uh, by his death on the cross. But then there's also a further day of the Lord that's coming when Jesus will return and uh, set up his perfect kingdom in a perfect new creation. And so we have those three, uh, at least three times that uh, are being referred to when we talk about the day of the Lord. Um, and, uh, but even though we are looking at these different time frames and things, it's still good to understand the historical setting that these prophecies are, are talking about uh, so that we can see all three or more references and fulfillments of God's word. And this, is, uh, this passage that we're looking at now is, is an especially interesting one because it doesn't actually use the phrase, the day of the Lord, but it's about the day of the Lord. It's about God coming to save his people. And, um, and, and, and as you can guess from the fact that it is sung as part of Handel's Messiah, uh, it is about Jesus. And it's clearly about the coming of Jesus. Um, but... Uh, but as we, as we look at that, even though there is, uh, e even the initial fulfillment, uh, the, the near fulfillment is not actually happening in Isaiah's day. It's about 150 years after Isaiah that even the near fulfillment of this takes place. And those are the people uh, when God says, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, what is the uh, immediate uh, historical context that he is referring to. Who is it who has completed their hard service? It's not the people of Hezekiah's time that we heard about last week. It's a historically later group of people, of God's people and, and of Jews. And I'm going to fill you in quickly on the story of what happened after God rescued Jerusalem from the Assyrians and, uh, and, and, and all the story that we talked about last week. Well, when Hezekiah died, his son Manasseh took over as king. And Manasseh did not follow his father in faithful trust in God. Uh, here is what the Bible says to summarize the life of Manasseh. This is from the book of 2 Chronicles. 
It says, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his children in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced divination and witchcraft. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing his anger. Manasseh led Judah astray so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. Manasseh, in fact, was probably the worst king of Judah. And then his son Ammon took over when Manasseh died, and Ammon was so bad that his own officials assassinated him. And his son Josiah then took the throne at the age of eight. But I don't know who exactly was pulling the strings behind the scenes for Josiah. I doubt he was making a lot of decisions at eight years old. But anyway... Here's what the Bible says about Josiah. It says, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And so Josiah again led God's people to worship God properly. Unfortunately, he was the last king of Judah to do so. There were four more kings after Josiah's death, each one serving just a short time. All of them were evil, and then God had had enough. See, back in Deuteronomy, back uh, much earlier in the biblical history, when Moses was still leading the people uh, out of Egypt, and they were just about to take the promised land that God was giving them, um, uh, and, and, and they were... God was driving out the Canaanites in judgment. Uh, God had said this back in uh, Deuteronomy. He said, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you this day that you will surely be destroyed. Like the nations the Lord destroyed before you, so you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. You see, the Canaanites were destroyed by God because they were an evil people who had angered God with their sin. And the Israelites would find that God would also judge them if they failed to follow him, ended up sinning in the ways that the Canaanites had sinned. And that's exactly what happened. Did you catch that in the, in the description of Manasseh that I was reading? It said, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. And so God sent judgment in the form of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon who had by this time conquered the Assyrians and uh, was now the new super, superpower in the, uh, in the world or that part of the world. 
And the Babylonians came in. They destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They uh, destroyed the temple of God. And they carried away most of the survivors into exile in Babylon. This happened about 100 years after Isaiah. And then after 70 years of exile in Babylon, the Babylonians were then conquered in their turn by the Medes and the Persians, uh, who allowed the Jewish people to return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple of God. Now, I know that's a lot of history uh, that you've had the last three weeks. We've talked a lot of history. Um, But we talk about this history because it helps us to understand what Isaiah is talking about in his historical context. Also, it helps us to see that what we're talking about here is not some fantasy story like uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, where it uh, is set in a made-up world full of made-up characters who do made-up adventures. Um, These are real history. Most of the stuff that I was just telling you about can be confirmed by uh, other secular historical sources. Archaeology and other historical documents and things can tell you about the Assyrians and the Babylonians and the conquering of Jerusalem and all those things. The stories in the Bible actually happened. The stories in the Bible are about real people. These guys, they have funny names like Hezekiah and Nebuchadnezzar and stuff like that, but they were real people. They they had real encounters with God. And the judgments and saving acts of God that we read about uh, in Isaiah really happened. And the future events that the Bible predicts are really going to happen too. So back to our passage in Isaiah chapter 40, what is he saying to these people who are in the exile, coming toward the end of that 70 years of exile in Babylon? That's who Isaiah is talking to here, 150 some years before uh, that actually took place. And he says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So the historical context here, even though Isaiah lived 150 years before this, is uh, he is prophetically giving a message to these people who are living in exile in Babylon as uh, they are nearing the end of that period and will soon be Uh, allowed to return to their homes in Judah and Jerusalem and rebuild uh, the temple of God. God had promised to punish his people if they committed the sins that the Canaanites had, had done before. And he did. He punished them. He took the land from them and forced them to live as exiles. But now that punishment was coming to an end. Her hard service had been completed Her sin had been paid for. God was about to save his people from the Babylonian captivity. That was the fulfillment of this prophecy. But but Handel, remember? Handel says uh, that while that was the nearest historical fulfillment of the prophecy, there was a greater coming fulfillment. Not just another fulfillment, but a greater, more complete 
more significant fulfillment of the prophecy. If you, if you think about the wording of this passage, I mean, look, look at what it's saying here. It's saying, her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What is the penalty for sin, according to the Bible? The Bible says the wages of sin is death, not temporary exile. In what sense, then, have the people paid for their sins? Is Isaiah suggesting that there's some kind of penance that they have completed now and so that they can now be forgiven of their sins? No, the idea of penance is not a biblical teaching. But what is happening here is that sin has at least two kinds of consequences. First, there is the, the immediate uh, this life uh, results of sin. And that can include natural consequences. For instance, if you, if you commit the sin of gossip, you are likely to wreck some friendships and wreck some relationships and, and, and cause yourself and other people a lot of pain. And there's also sometimes immediate punishments from God for sin. He can bring about circumstances in our lives that are a result of God's anger at our sin. So there are consequences for sin right in the here and now, right in the immediate uh, uh, sphere of, of, of your life. But those natural consequences and the immediate punishments from God are only one type of suffering for sin. There is also a much greater consequence for our sin as well. Our sins cause us to be guilty before God and liable for eternal judgment. And on the ultimate day of the Lord, we will all be judged. And if your sin is still on your account, you will be held guilty and you will pay for your sin with eternal death. And so when Isaiah announces here, comfort, comfort my people, says your God, your sins have been paid for. You've received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. What kind of payment has been made? Is he talking about the temporal consequence of sin in this life? Or is he talking about the eternal payment that removes our guilt before God? Yes, yes, that's what he's talking about. Both. Uh, the end of the exile signaled the end of the earthly punishment from God uh, that God's people were suffering as a result of their sin. This was uh, going to happen more than a century after Isaiah wrote about it, but Isaiah is also announcing in a, a, a greater payment for sins that will be happen about five centuries later after that, when Jesus came and, and paid the penalty and, their, and, 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 and these people's sins, my sins, your sins, our sins were paid for by Jesus on the cross. It is Jesus' ultimate payment for sins that is the reason that the prophet is told to speak comfort to the people of God, to tell them that the price has been paid in full. There's a double meaning to that last line of verse 2. It says, you have received from the Lord's hand double for all your sins. Now, does that mean that they've received punishment from God or that they have received a payment from the Lord's hands 
that God has made on their behalf? Well, yes, both of those. Both of those. So God has sent them the punishment of the exile, and also God has paid on their behalf the price that they owed for their sins. Um, so now their, their debt in the spiritual realm has been paid so that their sins can be wiped from our account. So that when we stand before God on the great day of the Lord, the day of judgment, our sins will not be counted against us. Our hard service has been completed. Our sins have been paid for, not by us, but by our representative, by our Savior, Jesus Christ. So, be comforted. Be comforted. Hear the tender words of God. Your sins are paid. You are saved. You don't need to worry. The next section of, of this chapter uh, tells us more about God coming to save us. It says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This, as you know, uh, is, is another quote from Handel's Messiah. <laughs> but also, uh, you know this because it is uh, quoted in all four of our Gospels in the Bible, quote this, in relation to John the Baptist, who came and prepared the way for Jesus to come. And the big idea here with all this, uh, you know, valleys being raised up and mountains and hills being brought down and everything is that all the obstacles are going to be removed for God to come to his people and rescue them. Now, obviously, it's not really about physical obstacles or about building a road, right? Uh, what is it that actually needs to happen to remove obstacles so that Jesus can come and save people? And, uh, and if we look at what John the Baptist did, if we say, well, John the Baptist was the fulfillment of this, well, what did he do? What did John do um, in order to fulfill this prophecy? Uh, and it, if you can look at it in, in all four Gospels, and it, basically what he did was he told everyone to repent of their sins and that they should produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And when they asked him, well, what does that mean? What should we do? The Gospel of John uh, records, or the Gospel of Luke records John's answer. Uh, it says, John answered, Anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Interesting that generosity to the poor is, again, the obvious example of the good works that God wants us to do. Uh, Gospel Luke goes on. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Stop doing wrong, do what's right. 
repent of your sins, that is how we prepare the way for Jesus to save us and to come to our rescue. Isaiah tells us that when that happens and people repent and and prepare the way for God to come to our rescue, then in verse 5, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, God is glorified when he saves sinners. When we repent of our sins and Jesus' death rescues us from guilt so that we can live in paradise with him forever, that reveals the glory of God. God's love, his mercy, his grace, and his justice are all on display in Jesus' salvation for repentant sinners. And that last phrase, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That, that phrase is used a number of times in Isaiah. And, 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 and what does that add to the discussion here? It means that this is going to happen. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. There is no question this will take place. God is going to come and save his people. The obstacles of sin will be removed. God will come and he will reveal his glory by saving his people from the consequences of their sin. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. This will happen. The only question is, will you be a part of it? Will you turn away from your sin and come to Jesus for salvation? Will you prepare the way for our God to come and save you? The next section of our passage continues that theme of the reliability of God's promise. It says, uh, I'm starting in verse 6 here. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All the people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. The the emphasis here is uh, on uh, who are we? Are we faithful and reliable like God? No, we are weak and unfaithful. We're like the grass. We're just temporary. We're, we're not consistent. But God is not like us. He is perfectly faithful. The word of our God endures forever. So if you make that choice to turn to God for salvation, if you take John the Baptist's instructions to heart and you, and you repent and you show fruit in keeping with repentance, God will save you. And your salvation will be based on his faithfulness, not on your ability to keep your promises and stop sinning. (laughs) If God has promised to save you, you will be saved, because the word of our God endures forever. 
And then the final section of the passage that we're going to look at today, we're not doing all of chapter 40, we're saving most of it for next week, but we're going for a few more verses here. Here's the final section for this week. It says, uh, starting with verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Here is your God. Now he's going to describe the God of, of Judah, the God of Jerusalem. He says, see, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. He carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Proclaim it from the hilltops. Here is your God. And what is God like? What is he doing? He comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. No one can withstand him. He has no rival. If God has determined to do something, he will do it. There is no stopping him. He is sovereign and he is mighty. But Isaiah paints a picture of this mighty God as also a God of kindness and gentleness. He uses that shepherd imagery. Uh, he is like a tender shepherd who gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. Now, some people imagine God as the first part of this section, coming with power and ruling with a mighty arm. And some people imagine God as the second part of this section, a gentle shepherd who gathers his lambs close to his heart. But the Bible teaches us that God is both. And he's not one in the Old Testament and one in the New we don't have an Old Testament God of judgment and wrath and a New Testament God of mercy and, and, and kindness. We have a consistent picture of God throughout the Bible as a God who is both powerful and tender. Both mighty and loving. It is our imagination that says that these things are opposites and cannot both be true about God. But the Bible has no problem teaching that God is, is both. It's right here in this passage. In you know, two verses, it has both, both sides of God. And throughout the Bible, both sides are taught. So, fear the Lord and run to him for comfort. Comfort, comfort my people. The price for sins has been paid. Prepare the way in your hearts for salvation to arrive. God is absolutely faithful and will save those who come to him. For the day of the Lord is coming when he will rule with a mighty arm and will gather his lambs close to his heart. 
So which part of this message needs to really sink in and penetrate your heart today? Do you need a word of comfort that the penalty for your sins has been paid? Are you caught up in guilt and shame and needing to hear that Jesus has completed the hard service on your behalf so that you can be free? Or do you need to hear God's call to prepare the way and remove the obstacles by repenting of your sins? Or do you need to be assured that what God has said will come to pass? Do you have doubts? Maybe even doubts that this whole thing is real? Do you wonder if there really is sin and salvation and Jesus? You need to know that the mouth of the Lord has indeed spoken. What he has said is true and will happen. Just as he did really come to the rescue of the Jews and enable them to return from the exile, God will come to your rescue on the greater day of the Lord. Or maybe the part of the message that needs to penetrate your heart is that God is a loving, caring shepherd who longs to hold you close to his heart. Do you doubt that God loves you? Do you wonder if you are good enough? God gathers his lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And he wants to bring you in too. Whichever part of that uh, message from Isaiah today that, that needs to become more real in your life and to become more a part of your heart and your thinking, I hope that you will hear what God is saying in the book of Isaiah today. I hope that you will be fully confident in God's word and his salvation and in his love for you. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this word spoken all those years ago by the prophet, but good and relevant for us today. I thank you that uh, we can be sure that you will come to save us just as you came and saved those ancient Israelites. Father, I pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.